Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we are going back to the late 1970s. And to help us out, we have a brand new guest to the podcast. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. I'm excited to be here. You bet. Yeah, you're um, here for a pretty good one, I think. Like, good era, at least, for talking about film. Arguably the last sort of grasp of the golden age of... The last golden age of Hollywood. The great um, run of American films in the 70s. We're arguably at the tail end of that in this era we're looking at today. So... I don't know. And I took late 70s really seriously because one of my movies came out on December 20th, 1979. So I wanted to get I wanted to get there as soon as I could. That's Just that's got it in. very admirable, like really pushing <laughs> it. Um perfect. Yeah. It um it's funny this saying that though it actually took me a long time to settle on my like my first moment came like immediately because it's a line that I think about all the time. It took me a long time to generate what I wanted to talk about for the second one, and they ended up going with a Canadian film. So I basically completely disregarded the great run of American cinema at the end of the seventies. <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. What's Canada up to? And I had a bit of a like when we when we brought this up, or I mean, obviously you and I both knew this was coming up because we tried to do all the eras at some point. But I always thought, oh, that that'll be easy. And I was like, there's tons of favorite movies I have in that. But then I was thinking it through and it it was harder to narrow down like what I wanted to talk about. I think I just have that in my head because, of course, that's when Star Wars comes out. So I'm just like, oh, it's obviously a great era because that's when Star <laughs> Wars was. But <laughs> Sure. But, you could have done uh, Star Wars and Star Trek, the motion picture. I could have. Oh. Didn't either. You know what? I appreciate you for challenging yourself. <laughs> I'm talking about a different sci-fi franchise That's instead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we jump into that one? Yeah, that's as good a segue Let's as any. Let's do it. <clears throat> okay, so my first uh, moment is going to be 1979's Alien from Ridley Scott. And the moment I'm going to talk about, because Alien's a pretty well-known film, I don't think I need to you know, go over the details too much. Uh, the moment I'm going to talk about is when they're ex- when the search party is down exploring this you know planet where the distress signal came from and they're exploring this alien ship and they actually find like one of the aliens in the chair like lying in that chair and it's it's really just the skeleton of the alien and then it's there's this big hole in the chest and so they end up walking up to it and the alien is like twice the size of a human and it's got kind of like this almost elephant looking face, but it's just a skull at this point, right? You see his ribs, um, you see the skull and there's a hole in the ribs. And of course they're looking at it and Dallas is saying, Oh, it looks like he exploded from the inside because the bones are going out, right? rather than, you know, if he got shot or something or got a projectile going in, uh, which is an interesting detail, which of course plays a big role later on in the film. But I just, I wanted to talk about this moment because I think that it's such a fantastic piece of world building in a sci-fi movie like this. And it's something that just grabbed me immediately. Like the first, I remember years ago, the very first time I watched Alien and just thinking that, oh, they actually found, I mean, I know the movie's called Alien 
And we all know what that alien looks like, but this is like a new species, like an actual sentient species that have their own technology and have their own ship. And I don't think I expected to see that in this movie. And I think the colloquial term is the space jockey, which is something that I've always, I don't, I just have hated that name. So I've never really used it myself, (laughs) but just to give context so people know what I'm talking about, if they do know, use that term, but it's, it's just a great piece of world building because it doesn't give you too much, but it gives you enough to get your imagination going. Because at that point, all you know about the time period that this is set in is that people can travel in space and you've got this kind of work crew that's going to and from places. But until you reach this point, you, that's it. Like you don't know how much of the universe has been explored you don't know if they've had contact with other species. And you, even at this point, you're not sure. You get kind of the sense that maybe this is the first one that they've come across, period. And like what a big discovery that is. Um, and it's it's the right way to do this. Not too much detail, um, but enough to just trigger all, you know, trigger all these ideas in your head and make you think, okay, this world is a little bit bigger than what we think but it's not over explained. It has, you know, it has a, its root in the story itself because what happened to that guy is going to be very, uh, very important for what ends up happening with the crew. And especially with the chest bursting and everything like that. The fact that he's such a size difference is cool. Cause you're like, okay, this is definitely like something non-human and, and that, is intriguing. Um, and so I just think it's really a top-notch example of sci-fi world building in a film, right? Like if it's a novel, the novel has tons of times to explain everything. And that's kind of a little bit different, right? Novel world building in a novel is way different than world building in movies. And sometimes I think less is more. And I think that this is Ridley Scott is, and the writers are like perfect here. They know exactly the kind of atmosphere you want to get exactly what details to give you and what not to give you and what to hold back and let your mind fill in the rest. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about this in terms of like what it might suggest about the world beyond the scope of just the story. And the sequels also are interesting in that regard because they also have a fairly narrow point of view on this world and not giving us too much about like, you know humanity's place in the cosmos in like that star trek way like we really don't know and thinking about like them discovering this uh alien being they don't seem particularly like you know oh we've discovered like new a new type of life in the world so that suggests like maybe that suggests that okay like there are other alien species that are known and maybe are still alive but it might also just be reflective of the fact that these guys are like basically truckers they're not scientists who are out to ponder the mysteries of the universe. They have to haul a load from one end of space to the other. So maybe it's also just reflective of that, where it's like, yes, one would think that anyone would be awestruck by the first knowledge of like definitively you're not alone in the universe, but there's enough with their type of character and uh, people that are on this journey that um, they wouldn't have the reaction that like a scientist would have or that like i don't know the the astronauts in 2001 a space odyssey have in comparison oh god my cat says hi (laughs) (laughs) they rarely meow on mike that was exciting 
Um, yeah, that's true. It's it, it is interesting because it does seem like yeah, they know of, they at least know the existence that there are other beings out there, but at the same time they're kind of in this mode of very cautiously exploring this place, right? They're they're really on edge as they're going through this cuz everything is everything's a little alien that they're checking out and um and they're really just kind of trying to learn what happened. And so I think their mindset isn't like, oh, look at this great new discovery. It's like, we got to be careful of everything that we're finding and and approach it all with like this yep. sense of caution. Don't stick your face in the egg. Don't do it, John Hurd. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing too that really makes that specific moment work, and I know it's been done to death with Alien, but... There's something about how sparse the production design is in that movie and sort of how empty everything feels. Because I know the first time I ever saw that movie was on like a yard sale VHS copy on a terrible tube TV. So my the first time I ever saw Alien, it was just characters on screen and just emptiness in backgrounds with just like because of how worn out this tape was. And it was just almost as if they were playing on these like blank canvases and these single colors. And whenever I watch the movie now, I just, maybe it's because having, I had a terrible copy to start out with. They just think of how empty and vast everything is. And to me, I think that sort of supplements when you see it in the chair, this is the most detailed thing you've seen in the movie with the exception Mm -hmm. of the egg. This is the busiest the frame has ever been. And now you're really confronted by the ugliness of what exactly you're facing. Because even Ian, you mentioned that we all know what the xenomorphs look like. But at that time, I didn't know how they functioned. I didn't know how much of a threat they were. They were a cool thing that I would see like, you know, in like Universal Monsters commercials and would be talked about, oh, there's this movie Alien. But when you're really confronted with it there, it just it raises the stakes in a way that like somehow they then do again with the chestbuster. But that's the real like, oh, you know, that's the the moment in the Godzilla movie where you see the tail for the first time. You're like, oh, okay, we're we're screwed. This is not gonna go well for anybody. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And it gives I was just gonna say it gives context to the chestburster scene too, right? Because yeah. this is this is setting up the mystery, and then that's the payoff of the mystery. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. It's great that the payoff is so gruesome, you're not even thinking about it as a payoff. It's not yeah. until later you're like, oh, that gotcha. <laughs> um, yeah, and the other thing, it's interesting to think about, like, I people always say this about certain films that have become, like, canonized and are so ingrained within pop culture, but just, like, to go back to 1979 when no one knows, you know, mm-hmm. when the trailer oh. is just, like, hallways and a siren and that beautiful tagline, and to just be like, what is happening, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and yeah. it's also it's necessary because like when you break alien down to its fundamentals, it's it's very straightforward. Like there's a monster on a spaceship and it eats people. This, this is basically it. It's those details that that elevate and distinguish it. So things like this are important. The fact that uh, the space jockey, which Ian, as an aside, do you prefer calling him the engineer, as we know from Prometheus? No, but I'm going to get into that. <laughs> okay. Um, the fact that, like, all of that, though, is, like, so detailed that, you know, even, again, well, I guess we'll get into Prometheus, the connection to that in a bit. Um, 
Ian's favorite movie for those who <laughs> listened last week. Um, it, it feels like there's so much like uh, context and history to that that maybe we don't have context for, but it is there. So even not knowing, it still has enough flavor to feel uh, distinct. And I guess one other thing to that extent that I find noteworthy is that the corpse is not just like, it doesn't just resemble bones, but it specifically seems to resemble like fossils, like dinosaur mm-hmm. bones, which aren't strictly just bones, which suggests like how long has this corpse just been sitting here? Does look like a long time. Yeah. And then when you consider mm-hmm. how many eggs are there, it's like, hmm, that definitely checks out for like a long time to be living un- undisturbed by others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a good thing you mentioned Prometheus. I do want to mention, we'll do a little peek behind the curtains. Like this episode was actually supposed to come out before last episode, right? We had kind of switched up the order. Um, So I was, not that it's a big deal, but I was going to, this was going to actually be my discussion before I talked about Prometheus. Um, And I was going to kind of ignore Prometheus. (laughs) Because as much as I love that movie, the one thing I don't like is that this was explained if that makes sense like i wish that the engineers weren't this weren't this alien i wish that this alien was kind of its own complete thing and that this was all we got from it because i like it better in that sense i like the the sense that we actually have no idea what this creature is um where they come from if their species is even around anymore i i just like that mystery of it because i think it's, it's just gets your imagination going so well not anymore it's the engineers nope. now yeah <laughs> and then david blew them all up in alien covenant <laughs> oh yeah so that's yeah. it and just as a kind of a i don't know i don't want to get too negative but um just as a point of contrast i guess for anybody out there who watches the mandalorian you probably are aware with episode three this year which uh tried to do a lot of world building as well we'll say so if, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And I think that that was uh, world building done very poorly because <laughs> it tried to go too far and explain too much. This is the way to do it. Take so, that, John Favreau. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen season three. Episode yeah. three is something else, man. I tell you. It's like, let's take a break from this story that we've already started telling for the first 10 minutes. Let's take a 40 minute break before we come back to it and tell an entirely different story. And let's not connect them at the end. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, that's how most great stories function. I think, you know, it's mm-hmm. like Pulp Fiction, you know, you start with Tim Ross structure. and Amanda Plummer in the diner <laughs> and you don't come back to them till the very end. Yeah. Yeah. Not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I love the scene. It's um it's this perfect little not a side because it does it's super important and there's a lot of detail in there like again the fact that they make a, they make note in the dialogue of like oh it looks like it burst from the inside like these are important plot details but it's also so fleshed out that it almost functions as its own little uh short film within the greater context of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to think that like as the series has gone on and expanded in in all these other ways the actual details of the universe have still been relatively like quiet, you know, like yeah. I still don't know to what extent in this world, other alien creatures exist, Pre- presumably to some extent, because in aliens, they have that line about like, this could be a stand up fight, sir, or another bug hunt. So it's like, okay, they've killed 
alien monsters and bugs in space. So maybe they've had like Starship Troopers-esque adventures, but like we still really don't know what the, you know, like is there intelligent species out there or is as like this base just animals in space and you know humans going in and colonizing there too. Um I don't know. It's interesting to think that like for as long as this franchise has gone on, I guess if you include the AVP movies as canon, the Predators <laughs> and who exist. Although that contradicts Prometheus because the Predators in Alien versus Predators revealed created the aliens right. for sport. <laughs> Which Not is uh, pretty demystifying when you consider the the epic mystery of this scene versus, oh, the Predators <laughs> did it so they could fight them in a pyramid. But alas. Yeah, the I mean, less this, said about that, the better. This is the second week in a row we brought up uh, Paul W.S. Anderson, though, so... <laughs> Oh, mm-hmm. Resident Evil one Can last we week. Three. No, <laughs> I haven't seen any of his other films. So, well, you got a week. Yeah, but because <laughs> <laughs> you so much more with that week. <laughs> what has he made? Okay, so the AV Resident Evil movies. The yes. first Alien versus Predator, uh, Monster Hunter. Yeah, did he do Event Horizon? I don't think so. Ooh. I think it was him. Didn't he do like a Three Musketeers something? He, yeah, with Orlando Bloom. But I, I think say. he did make Event Horizon. No. I, no. I, I, I'm, I'm bet you 20 bucks on this, Ian. We'll find out. Let's see. Event Horizon. Uh, it was. Anyway, moving on. Ah! <laughs> so you can e-transfer me uh the email we do for the show is fine um i did watch about 10 minutes of that at, like a sleepover in high school and then i fell asleep and i woke up and everyone was yelling and i went back to sleep so um i can talk about i don't know something from that next week there you go <laughs> all right well i don't know i think that we've tapped that out i just wanted to mention world building it's important, but don't overdo it. Like Good Dan way to summarize that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Jordan, why don't you tell us about your first movie? Well, my first movie, oddly enough, is uh, because of world building, too. Uh, it's done a little bit differently, but uh, it would be the opening sequence of The Warriors, but specifically the first shot of the movie. But you kind of have to talk about the opening sequence to... So what I like about the opening of the Warriors and a little backstory on sort of my relationship with the movie, uh, it was uh, like the first cool movie my dad showed me. It's like sort of got that kind of sentimental place of like, oh, I got this tape. You're like, oh, okay, cool. And um, the way the movie starts is just this really silhouetted shot of the Wonder Wheel in Coney Island sort of flickering and there's this uh, really haunting synth score, and it just sort of holds there for a while. Now, the opening of the movie is essentially the journey that our heroes are going to take. Uh, so it's a Walter Hill movie, and essentially, if you're familiar with the story of uh, 300, it was adapted into a novel about New York gangs in like the 70s. They turned it into a movie. But what I really like about that opening shot, and you don't realize it until you've gone through the entirety of the movie is that you're being presented the finish line and it's dark and it's mysterious. And that's where we're starting. We're about to go on this 
you know, essentially this odyssey in a way. And realistically, if we just stay here, there is no problem. And I've always, I really like that because it's so, once the actual movie starts, you get really cool, well, cool, but like, you know, like 70 schlock with like some of the first synth scores and in needle drops of like Joe Walsh has a song in it. But that first moment feels so much different and feels so much haunting. And I think it's really the movie already I'd be giving it too much credit if I was like, it's already lamenting the fact that it has to go on this journey. Cause I think the movie's grimy and cooler than that, but it's almost melancholy about what's about to happen. And then you forget about it until the last thing you see in the movie and a classic sort of first shot, last shot is the wheel. And it's the lights are off and it's daylight and it just feels so much more inviting, even though it's not in use, which I think is also important. Whereas like in use, these warriors, these gangsters, they're these like lit up dark figures where realistically once they're off, that's when they're safe. Also probably giving the movie too much credit. But uh, yeah, that was sort of the first thing that struck me was just this kind of single frame. And the other thing I wanted to say about the warriors and sort of late seventies in general, I miss sweaty movies. <laughs> I, I, that's the, the sort of the through line that connects my two movies, and we'll get to the other one afterwards. And I just wanted to make an aside about this where no one is sweaty in movies anymore, and I don't know why. And I'm sure that sort of just sounds weird. Like, in a Bruce bubble, Willis retired. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but like, even just dialogue scenes have just glistening, and you're like, okay, cool. It probably worked for lighting, it was probably hot in there. It's because and... Tony Scott's dead. That's why. <laughs> Tony Scott yeah. had a motto, the sweater, the better. And that was the way he <laughs> shot any scene. Sex yeah, scene, dialogue scene, exposition All scene. Just like, just, I don't know. But anyways, that was sort of my feelings towards that. A great movie. Probably could have distilled it down a little bit better. But there's something just about how it starts that every time, every time I watch it, I like, fast like rewind it back and start it twice and then is it just i don't know <laughs> anyways well i wanted to ask because it's interesting that this is one of the scenes that is now altered in depending on what cut you watch because Ooh. there's the modern Ooh. i think it's the blu-ray that's just widely available has like yes these comic book panels yeah and these comic book like um not thought bubbles but like the descriptive uh word bubbles you get in comics and i believe this opening shot there's one of those and it says something like somewhere in new york or meanwhile in new york yes um how does you feel about that <laughs> so that's the only that's the best available version right now uh i don't know like a little backstory on that the last time they restored it was around the time that 300 came out and because 300 was a comic book they sort of restored it to kind of remarket the movie. This was also around the time that the Rockstar Games game was out. So, you know, you had the Warriors there because uh, it was on DVD and the Blu-ray. What's interesting is that Walter Hill says that he always intended it to be this way. But it's one of those things that looked aged when it came out. Like, this is my, like, George Lucas editing the <laughs> whatever. This is, like, the, the Zazu Zazu song for me or those, like, <laughs> whatever that song's called. <laughs> for me, it's those, like, comic panels of, like, God damn. Because it just, 
there's a whole prologue to the movie and to sort of, I guess I didn't touch on the kind of world building aspects of the opening sequence, but the whole opening sequence sets up not only the plot functions of the movie, but the atmosphere of it, which I think is what I really respond to. And I just lost where I was, but I don't know. I feel very, I, I wish arrow or somebody would run with it and we wouldn't have to worry about those comic panels anymore, but I don't think it ruins the movie, but it'd be better if they weren't there. That's probably it's, that. it's clearly a tie-in and <laughs> that's fine. You know, and if that's really what Walter Hill wanted to do, I, he, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's a happy man. Good for yeah, him. and I question that too because I wonder. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it's like I always intended it to have a bit of a comic booky feel. Like, okay, yes, sure, but the having literal like comic panels and text, I am suspicious of. Um, and I wanted to bring it up too because I feel like like the Star Wars comparison is a perfect one. But at least with Star Wars, like the edits are, in fact, largely worse in Star Wars. The changes that are made. But at least, like, that's a pretty well-known issue in film culture. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone knows about the Star Wars edits. Maybe, like, you know, like, my parents don't know. But anyone who knows film to some extent knows that. But The Warriors yeah. has kind of slipped under the radar. And yet, it's a, it's not the most famous movie ever made, but it's got some really famous iconography. It's probably one of the most famous, like, I don't know, 70s movies. Yeah. And yet, you can't watch it in its original form, unless you've got like an old DVD or maybe even VHS tape. Yeah. And the other thing that's weird about it too, is the function of the comic panels is adding exposition, which is your movie already worked. Like we, we, we could follow it along. I understood that those guys wanted to beat up those guys. And now if you watch it again, you experience the movie and then it's recapped to you in like, you know, Holy, you know, Hey, true believers. The Warriors got to get through the baseball furies. You're like, okay, cool. And then that happens, but we knew that. So it's, it's, it's a strange edit there too, because it, it adds a handholding to a yeah. movie that is not incredibly difficult to follow. They think they, they killed that guy and they got to get home. I got you easy. And then every time that frame pops in, the movie lets you know where they are, which they've already done. I don't know. But it'd be yeah. nice when they when they treat their audiences dumber than they are. That's frustrating. Yeah, but it's just so strange that it's in like forty years later. Like we had to make yeah. the movie. Oh, seventies very difficult for you. There you go, and you're like, oh, thank you. It's <laughs> a little guide. It's a booklet. It pops out at you. There's like a little soundboard. The Warriors, <laughs> war. Like you know what I mean? <laughs> like thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, for a film whose plot was you know so shrouded in obtuse qualities yeah um it's i i like that you highlight though just basically being like i just love this opening shot and the sort of you know and i think you you do make some interesting points about reading the book ended uh quality of the film as being like sort of the deeper context behind it deeper meaning behind it but also that your own response to it is just like it just is perfect for setting a tone and atmosphere that Mm. uh I mean, even starting in the sort of, you know, the the way that it opens at night in the dark and the sort of this magical quality with the light from the wheel and like, uh, it sounds corny to say it out loud, but this sort of quality of like when it's really late at night and it's uh, 
it's dark and the sort of like you're almost outside of time like rules mm-hmm. don't apply and when you make it to the next day it's like you're you kind of reset um which is a feeling the movie very much plays into like it's all set over the one night and yeah because of the sort of uh colorful quality of our main gang and all the other gangs there's a it really lends itself to that kind of like um i don't know outside of the world uh quality to it that i think that opening shot gets to really well yeah i would 100% agree with that. I don't know if I have anything else to milk from the opening shot, but I just, I don't know. It's just such a great striking image that leads into this sort of adventure and, you know, the finish line thing. But yeah, take out the comic book panel, somebody, please. Disney owns it, so never going to happen. It's going to be <laughs> a comic book. Like, that's what I get in the end, but that's fine. Were You were, sorry, you were saying that there's a contrast between the first shot and the last shot, though? Yeah, because you see the Wonder Wheel again. Okay. And you see it in the daytime. You see it after, I mean, legitimately moments after the bad guy is blown away. They all have like an embrace, like, we did it! And they look <laughs> they look to the fairgrounds because the, the last sequence of the movie is in that fairgrounds. That's where it all, it really is where gotcha. it's all leading to. And But it's, it's shut down in sort of the last moment of conflict, which, you know, sort of juxtaposes this whole thing of like, them being a, a living thing when the city's asleep. But anyway. I had no idea it was based on um, Thermopylae at all. Yeah. <laughs> I had no yeah, idea. So That's the, cool. It was, the novel was written in like the 60s by some guy, Saul Yurik. It's one of those books that's just been out of print. It's the same with, I've always wanted to read Who Censored Roger Rabbit, but you can't right. really find that novel either. Um, but yeah. Totally based off of that. And that's why there was that weird moment where they were trying to jump onto 300. Because they're like, ah, yeah, you like it? Eh, eh? like, okay, <laughs> great. Fascinating. The cultural power of Zack Snyder. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting because the, the comic book version is the one that I've, the only one I've seen, also shown to me by my dad, not on VHS, yeah. not on DVD, not on Blu-ray, but on HD DVD. Oh, you yeah. win. That very oh. that very specific window in time. And actually, to tie it all back, I was at a, a used used store the other day, and they have the DVD and Blu-ray section, and one HD DVD was there, and it was 300. <laughs> so it all came come full circle tonight. Oh, oh man. Incredible. Um, Ian, have you not seen The Warriors? No. Oh, oh, no, man. I haven't. And I know, like, it's got a big cultural footprint. I don't know why I haven't. I think it's just one I haven't got to yet. I'd like to watch it again, which hopefully by the time I'm like, I'm in the mood to watch the Warriors, it'll have been like the original version will be restored by somebody. Um, yeah, you'd think it would be right for that. But. Disney seems somewhat willing to play with boutique distributors, at least for their non sort of canonized Disney movies. So yeah. you never know. Well, maybe um, with their new CEO, he seems a little bit more open to that kind of stuff too, so... Well, and like, mm-hmm. how much money are you realistically going to make with the Warriors with like a Disney Plus prequel series? Probably not a lot. Yeah. But putting out a nice Blu-ray release or a nice 4K release when the film hasn't had one in a long time and the one that does exist is in a compromised form, I'd probably do all right. Yeah. So. Well, for your sake, Jordan, I hope they do it. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't have... Uh... I don't have super high hopes, but it'd be great because, you know, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people are still around. So if they're going to do it, it'd be cool if they did it now. 
But anyways, opening show. Um, nice. all right. I'll uh, I don't have anything to say about world building with my next pick, but you know, whatever. I'll just plow right into it. Uh, Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. Um, maybe my favorite Malick movie. I think he's made films that are have better like stories, strictly speaking, and are more ambitious in certain ways, more thematically stirring, more visually audacious, but nothing at least at this point hits me quite the same way days of heaven does. Um, and the scene I want to talk about is for all the visual splendor in Malik. This is actually a dialogue scene and a very simple one uh, to give some context to the story. Um, this is necessary to talk about my moment. So you have these two characters, Bill and Abby, who are a couple, and they are working on this farm together in the uh, Depressionary United States, but they're posing as brother and sister, and Bill ends up sending Abby to infiltrate into the wealthy farmer whose land they work on. Basically, you get the sense the farmer has a thing for her, so he's like, hey, go sleep with him and so we can start benefiting collectively from his wealth, and then... As she does, initially very hesitantly to be forced into this role, she ends up falling in love with the farmer, and they get together, and Bill leaves the farm for a bit, and at this point he's come back in the story, and Bill and Abby just walk off to talk together in the barn, and this is the first time they've really hashed things out since their relationship has fallen apart. And then we cut inside the barn, and all we get is Abby saying, I'm sorry, and Bill responding, you didn't do nothing to me. I didn't know what I had with you. And then he kind of trails and mumbles off. And I love this just for, well, I speculate the script had a much longer, maybe even more conventional dialogue scene and that more was filmed and that a lot of it just got cut and reduced to this moment because the film, they shot for a long time and then Malik spent a very long time editing the movie. And like even runtime wise, this is much shorter than most of his films. And I get the impression that this is kind of the movie, even though Badlands, a lot of his style is already pretty fully formed, that it was Days of Heaven where he realized, like, you know what? Maybe I don't need to say much at all. Maybe I can take everything <laughs> away. I can, like, reduce things to their barest element. And even if that's not the case, even if even in script form, the scene was intended to be just those simple lines, I think it is a good embodiment of what makes his films and specifically Days of Heaven so powerful and how it really gets it cuts to the bone of the, the emotional core of the piece and without being like too overtly direct but just by and not in a way of like rushing to the next beat but in um sort of boiling things down to their essentials you know you can imagine a more conventional dialogue scene between these two where you know they ask how each other's been and he asks if he loves her or if, if she loves him and then that's when she says i'm sorry and you get to this beat but it's like we don't need that. We can fill in those gaps. We can just have the context of where the relationship has been, have the sort of tone set by the emotions of the scene, by the music, by the cinematography, and then just have, I'm sorry, you didn't do nothing to me. I didn't know what I had with you. It's such a perfect encapsulation of this, um, what they once meant to each other, the sense of loss for what they no longer have and won't gain back, um, but also a reflection of how they've both grown as people, especially Bill, this acknowledgement that instead of sort of thrashing against his faith or his fate rather, or regretting what's become of his life, he just can very simply acknowledge like, this is my fault. And, you know, I can't hold any animosity towards you for it. It's such a simple, beautiful scene and it makes me cry every time. So uh, that's my moment. Nice. I like how you contextualized it as like, 
indicative of where Malik's career is going to eventually go. I like that idea where he's like, yeah, I can, I can do more with less. And he kind of applies that not just to dialogue, but he ends up applying that to, you know, overall story beats as well. And to the point where he's famous for, you know, cutting out entire actors out of their roles (laughs) through his editing. Um, So that's interesting because days of heaven, I remember being very surprised when I saw Badlands for the first time because I was, you know, I had seen his other films like, you know, the middle Malick era, we'll say, right? Like New World, Thin Red Line. And when I went back to see um, Badlands, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There's actually a story here and people are actually talking (laughs) like what's happening. And then Days of Heaven really is kind of that that bridge, right? Where you still get the sense of things that are happening in Badlands, um, but you definitely see where he's going to end up taking this and where his career is going to go, even though it took 20 years for that to happen. But um, it is an interesting film in that regard. Yeah, because it's it's a short dialogue scene, but it's a long Malik dialogue scene. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> you know, like they, yeah. in sort of thinking about it as the bridge, like even if you, I feel like, as someone who obviously wasn't around to experience them as they were happening, I probably started paying attention around new world. And if you go go back to days of heaven, it's still like, it really does feel like that bridge. Like it doesn't, when it comes to dialogue and it comes to sort of communicating, it still feels linear enough. Whereas badlands really feels like a first feature. So when I think of it sort of as that bridge and, and sort of the talking, it's, it's almost weird to think of a really poignant Malik moment that actually involves people talking to each other and not sort of this kind of internalized. And I think that's why it's also so powerful in his filmography mm-hmm. because the, you know, a lot of it is internal and it's meditated on and it washes over you. So to sort of see that expression between two people done literally, I suppose in any other movie, we're not talking about this, but in a Terrence Malik movie, to have that sort of confrontation be through dialogue and be through people emoting is I think really important too, because he's sort of getting there, but he is mastering how to do it. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. absolutely It is funny to think that like, now we're talking about Badlands is like, that's the accessible Malik. Cause you got to figure people (laughs) in 1973 are not talking about it like that. Um, but, you know, time has done funny things to his work. I mean, even rewatching Thin Red Line, I was kind of surprised that, I mean, a lot of the more esoteric um, ideas that the movie explores, that's a lot of visually and internalized uh, monologues. But the dialogue scenes between, say, Elias Codius and uh, Nick Nolte almost resemble like Paths of Glory and like fairly traditional war movie conflicts between like, you know, saving the men versus let the men die to pursue our our objective like it was kind of surprising to watch like oh yeah it's not you know three hours of like you know malik's camera following a butterfly while there's a battle in the background like there is these sort of plot confrontations here Mm -hmm. um so it's i don't know i find it surprising sometimes like malik's reputation as the the auteur that he is almost overshadows the movies themselves um, the fact that he's gone so far down that uh, rabbit hole with movies like Knight of Cups, which I do like, um, despite what everyone keeps telling me, I will continue to like that one. Um, 
Should have brought it up I, last week. You know, I should have, but I haven't seen it since <laughs> it came out on DVD. So that was like nine years ago. So wow, memory is not the weird. sharpest. Um, but yeah, and I think maybe that's why this is my favorite Malik film in general is because it does, even in its own small way, get to like externalizing these um, sort of fractured relationships between people that his other movies would not do to the same extent. Even if it is just a simple line, that's more than we maybe get in the new world. Mm-hmm. Although I love the new world as well, to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good moment. I haven't seen this movie in ages. Like, when was the last time you saw it? Like two years ago. I showed it to a class. Okay. Um, Because we were doing kind of in an unconventional way. I had to show a host 1960s film just to demonstrate ideas of like montage editing. And I thought the easy way to do that is to show something like really frenetic, quick cutting. But I thought if the sort of main component to editing is simply this idea of like shot a has meaning shot b has meaning but when you combine them you have a new meaning that doesn't exist independent of the other you don't need to show something with a lot of quick cuts and i think actually showing something that's you know not necessarily edited the way eisenstein would have edited a movie makes people think about the technique more in terms of its meaning rather than the execution exactly and i think it's a good example of how a story is conveyed simply through the combination of images um, and I also kind of wanted to get students to think about what potential political meanings were being constructed by the editing choices without pushing them too far to that end. I don't know if any did, but I thought it was clever at the time because <laughs> I think there's some really interesting stuff there in terms of uh, looking at the film in contrast to, say, Soviet cinema. But that's a different topic, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Just trust me when I say it made sense at the time. Sweet. What about you, Jordan? When's the last time you saw it? Uh, it's been a couple years. Like, I can't think of... Hmm. I definitely had the Blu-ray at some point and watched it then. But, no, I haven't watched a Malick movie in a long time. Like, I find with a lot of, like, Malick or Tarkovsky or... I just end up in these phases where... I'll watch a bunch at once and then I have to check out entirely. Like my brain just can't. There's only certain moments where something's so dense and then I'll just take a lot of it. Like I'll just be a glutton for it and then burn myself out (laughs) and slowly walk away from it all. So I am definitely due uh, some more Terrence Malick, but I, I do like that. I do like days of heaven a lot. I just, I don't know. It's been a while. Since I've seen it, it's always good to see Sam Shepard. That's always been one mm-hmm. of my favorite beats on that. But well, that's the other interesting thing is the aftermath of this scene is that ironically, the moment where Bill and Abby reconcile with the fact that they're going to separate, his misinterpretation of what has happened forced them to then stick together like glue. Uh, which I won't say too much about for fear of spoilers because even though Malik's films are light on traditional plot they do have stories and they are very emotionally involving and very uh and this is one of the most like sort of like motivated by clear-cut like you know cause and effect chain logic that um i do think is worth experiencing and i will say as far as like malik in general like i was cold on malik for a very long time including first time i saw this i did not like it very much but when i saw knight of cups i was like i actually really liked that and started going back this was the first one that I watched again that I was like, 
that I really relaxed and stopped trying to like hyper scrutinize every image and be like, what is Malik saying? I'm like, just let it wash over you and just digest it on its own terms that like everything kind of clicked. So, so maybe that's also why it's my favorite. Hold on. You're saying not only do you like Night of Cops, yeah. but that movie made you reconsider yes. his entire filmography? I was about to ask yeah. the exact same question. We've talked about this before. <laughs> I think we have. It's just crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, that's well, the funny thing is like everyone, every review, except for like Matt Soller's sites on Night of Cops were like, Terry, what are you doing? So I went into it, not a Malik fan, expecting not to like it. And actually found it quite compelling. So it might have just, maybe it was the movie. Maybe it was just I, at that point in my life, was ready to let Terry just in. just a contrarian. Um, I'm not a contrarian, though. As we talked about in my, in the last week, movies that you love that everyone hates, I'm the opposite of a contrarian. <laughs> I'm a conformist. Bernardo Bertolucci made a whole movie about me. <laughs> and I will one day kill my professors. Um, but... Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> Uh, if you're listening, I don't mean you, Professor. I mean the other ones. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know. Like, it might have been Night of Cups specifically. It might have just been like, now I'm ready for Malik, where I am. I'm not like a teenager anymore. Um, but this was the first one that like, Night of Cups was, it got the sort of, you know, it opened my mind to at least like reconsidering. But this was the one where I'm like, no, I'd like, I love this. I was completely wrong the first time I saw it. Nice. So. Still got to rewatch Tree of Life. Haven't seen that one since it would have come out on on uh, DVD. And I liked it at the time, but I was certainly like, I don't know. It's got some nice shots, but y'all need to calm down. But I was 16, so what do I know? Yeah, you probably should rewatch that. Yes. I got the Criterion. So. And what are you waiting for? I, yeah. If you're going to do it, you might as well watch, what is it, like seven hours, the Criterion cut? How long is that one? I don't remember. I'd have to look into it. I think both are there, the theatrical and the... So many more dinosaurs, you're going to love it. <laughs> you're going to love it. I probably will. I mean, who doesn't love dinosaurs? Oh, I mean that sincerely. I know that came out sarcastically, but <laughs> so many dinosaurs. I'm in. Um, cool. All right. I guess yes. I'll toss it back to Ian for uh, Not More Malik. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, so my first one I went with Alien, which is one of my absolute favorite movies that I have seen numerous times. So I thought for my second pick, um, I was like, well, I could go with Star Wars, <laughs> which is exactly the same idea. So I didn't. I decided to go with a movie I actually only saw like a year ago, maybe, um, that I always kind of thought was, you know, a typical Oscar winning movie um, that was kind of kind of end up being boring but i ended up liking it quite a bit and that's kramer versus kramer from 1979 and the reason i think that it works so well for me is just that it it just feels genuine like there's there's something about the writing and about the acting the performances there that just makes you feel like these are real people going through something really going through something um and so one moment that really stood out to me was a scene where so the story with Kramer versus Kramer with Dustin Hoffman uh, and Meryl Streep is they're, you know, a couple with a with a young boy and they're going through a divorce. She ends up she ends up leaving, um, leaving Dustin Hoffman. The character's name is Ted to to raise their son on on his own for a while. And the scene that really kind of grabbed me, I guess, when I when I first saw this was the scene where. Not too long after she left, where he's making his son French toast, 
So they get up in the morning and they're about to go to school and he's about to go to work. And so he's going to make him breakfast in the morning. And so he makes some French toast and is just the absolute most haphazard way to make, make French toast. He's, you know, he's, he knows what he's doing for the most part. He knows the recipe and everything, but you can tell that this is not something that he does normally. He usually does not cook. Um, He's basically cracking an egg in just a regular glass like a drinking glass and he's the kids even like you got egg you got eggshells in it so he's like pulling out the shells he's like well that's not a big deal it's it just makes it crunchier and he's the bread is all ripped up and and he's like sticking his fingers in the eggs constantly and i'm just like wash your hands man and then he he salmonella salmonella he's, he's like folding up the bread dipping it into this drinking glass of of eggs and milk throwing it on the frying pan and then he just like takes the rest of the i don't know if you guys do this when you make french toast but he just took the rest of the egg and milk mix and just like poured it over all the toast and i'm like do people do that 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 would make it soggy and disgusting but anyway <laughs> the the reason that i think the scene is so good is a it's comedic it's it's a comedic scene but it also gets across a few things there's a few things going on here which really relates to the central conflict of these this husband and wife that are breaking up and you see you kind of see both perspectives in this moment because the fact that he is very clearly not accustomed to doing this for his son probably gives you some sense of um her perspective of maybe why she needs to get out of this because maybe he's not pulling his weight when it comes to what's going on at home right and what's and actually taking care of their kid uh, because he is very clearly new to this idea. Now he's willing to put in the work. He is there and he is eager to do it. And he wants to spend that time with his son, but you can tell that it's almost too little too late at this point. You get that her perspective. Um, and then there's a very interesting little moment in the scene where, you know, he's getting orange juice and then the son's like the toast is burning. And so he goes and he grabs the handle right out of, out of instinct which of course burns his hand and he drops everything on the floor and, and he's like, damn it. And then he says, damn her. And that kind of just comes out and the, and the, and the sun is just kind of like, there's that moment of silence. And so you're like, okay, now you're kind of seeing his perspective that she, you know, she has left them in this mess in this chaotic scramble. Right. So I think it's an interesting way to show, um, show a moment between father and son, but in a way that roots it in the conflict of the movie. So that's, that's my moment, I guess. I'm surprised you didn't bring up the payoff. Yeah, I should. Oh yeah. At the end of the film. I meant to. Yes. Yeah. When they're cooking French toast again together and it's like after things are clicking. Yeah. Yeah. It's one shot. They don't say anything. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I dropped the ball. I didn't mean to bring that up. I just, well, that's why there's two of us. That's why, you know, that's right. And I think the thing I like too is that the last beat of that scene where after he says damn her and it drops, Dustin Hoffman has such like an empty look on his face when he tells, I forget what the exact line is, but he's, it's basically settle or like, no, it's everything's okay. It's going to be okay. That's what it is. And he, but there's just such emptiness in his eyes that even though you have the comic undertones under that, like the first time you see that scene, it's kind of funny. It'll be crunchy, whatever you once you rewatch it with the context of the movie, 
he's lying to himself that whole scene. And when you're in on the joke, it just hits so much sadder. Like if I remember correctly, the the glass is like a number one dad coffee mug. And he just, <laughs> and he's got his hand, like it's just sort of that where it's like, even in what he's using, even in the tools that he has, there's just a lie there. That always strikes me. Like I, I really like subtle, as much as guys like Hoffman and Pacino, they were all sort of like so explosive in the 70s. I think that last beat in that scene of Kramer versus Kramer is like the ultimate sort of sad Dustin Hoffman moment. Yeah, he's very, very good in this movie, I think. There's a fascinating bit, too, of watching him, especially in the first act where, you know, as he's processing this and the sort of turn he does from blaming her to then starting to really grapple with why she left. And really it culminates in the scene where uh, his son's, you know, trying to go to sleep and he asks, like, why did mom leave? And he has to try and explain it to him. And as Dustin Hoffman's explaining it, you see him like on his face, you see him start to understand why she left, not just them, but him. And it's, it's a really, it's a deft example of that sort of subtle performance you're talking about Jordan, because it is like, and it's, it's crucial because this film walks a very tight rope where in its premise and subject matter, it could very easily be like, you know, a movie that's like lashing back against second wave feminism uh, and to some extent, it is like a male reaction to second wave feminism, but it it avoids being just like, you know, angry or demonizing the sort of the Meryl Streep character, the 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 wife, the symbolic wife, um, in a way that a lesser movie would have fallen into. It manages to, you know, sidestep that pretty effectively. And it's also interesting to think that like, this is also kind of the mainstream culmination of uh, a series of movies about women made during either during or just before second wave feminism really sort of solidifies um, about women sort of branching out of the sort of domestic unit in the home and away from a husband and trying to find happiness outside of the bounds of that. I mean, Scorsese's Alice doesn't live here anymore. Does that Coppola's first, one of his first films, the rain people is essentially that, um, and this is the most that this idea sort of um, really emerges in like a big mainstream movie. Um, and I think it does. So it, it from a very like male perspective, despite the fact that it's billed as like Kramer versus Kramer, it's really Kramer dealing with the aftermath of Kramer leaving. And then they, yeah. you know, come back into it in the last act. Like I've heard people describe this as or when marriage story came out, I knew people who hadn't seen Kramer versus Kramer saying like, oh, they're just doing Kramer versus Kramer. It's like, no, 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 no. The Meryl Streep character is very much supporting and she leaves the film and does not come back for a very long time. Um, so it is still from like a man's perspective rather firmly in the story, but um, it does so with a certain empathy and, and attempting to understand that I think is really key. Yeah, there's, it's interesting because, I mean, I'm not... Other than knowing some friends that have that are going through divorce, I'm not really like it's not really a part of my world. Like my parents are still happily married, um, and so am I. And so I, I'm not that familiar with the idea of divorce as a subject matter. But it, God, it, it makes you wonder. Like filmmakers, 
it must be tough for filmmakers to hold down a marriage because they always like divorce seems to be something that they always want to tackle. Um, and it's also interesting because I, as a counterpoint, I just watched scenes from a marriage and Ingmar Bergman scenes from marriage like this morning. <laughs> so, and as you were saying it, Kramer versus Kramer does come from kind of like the looking at it from the male's perspective in that case. And it's, it is, it's almost a little bit easier to be more sympathetic with Dustin Offman, maybe because, um, because Meryl Streep did leave. Right. And so, and she is out of the picture. So it's, it's naturally going to be easier for us to sympathize with him because we're seeing what he's going through. Um, But like you said, I do think it walks that line really well. Whereas uh, in scenes from a marriage, I don't know about you, but personally I was on more on the um, on Marianne's side in that, in that case. And it was, it was Bergman kind of framed it more from her perspective. At least that's how I found it. But yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I think Um, I agree with you that I'm more on Liv Allman's side in scenes from a marriage than I am uh, Erlen Josephson. But um. But that one also is more like even handed in like maybe not even handed in terms of equally laying blame at the parties, but it is like screen time. Yeah, Yeah. it's observing both of them and how they react to it. Um, And Bergman seemed I mean, Bergman was also a serial cheater, so I imagine he was empathetic towards (laughs) Erlen Josephson. Uh, I actually I almost talked about this week, um, Autumn Sonata, which Bergman makes in 78, and I ended up not. But one of the things that's interesting about that movie is... um, Ingrid Bergman plays a sort of retired concert pianist who's been like very distant and cold to her child who's played by Liv Ullman all her life. And it's like the mother daughter conflict. And Bergman is clearly like very empathetic towards Liv, but there's also some of the criticisms she makes of her mother in that movie are like a little bit unfair. And you do get the sense that Bergman workaholic, great artist really relates to the idea of like, yes, yes, go play parent has to make art because of the most brilliant artist in the world um which adds an interesting quality to how bergman like frames these kind of conflicts where because he's so i don't know flawed as a person or maybe maybe well flawed but also specifically flawed in the sense of like not being a family man or a sentimentalist in that way sees those people with a similar empathy, even if they're the less openly sentimental or sympathetic characters. Um, yeah, in some ways it's interesting too, because scenes from a marriage, even though it's more even handed in screen time, it feels meaner somehow than Kramer versus Kramer. Yes. Um, with that. Yeah. I really enjoy Kramer versus Kramer. I think it's film that in some ways, like a lot of best picture winners bears the weight of that best picture win, especially in, years where depending on what other movies it triumphed over because Kramer versus Kramer versus Kramer is the same year as like apocalypse now. And which is like, you know, a sort of art film with a capital a and Kramer versus Kramer, I think is really great, but it's also more of a audience pleaser. In some ways it's a safer movie um, than something like apocalypse now. And I would argue that the two movies it beat that it's sort of most um, suffers from for beating them are apocalypse now and Jordan's next pick. So Jordan, why don't you introduce your film? Wait a minute. That's my movie you're talking about. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So the uh, the other pick is technically 
five little moments that make up like six seconds of the movie. So I'm cheating. These are five different scenes. We don't know how cheating. Well, I just did. (laughs) Um, And it's every time in the movie that uh, Roy Schneider's character says uh, it's showtime. Now, just to give people some context of what movie we're talking about, all that jazz, 1979, December 20th, 1979. (laughs) It's right there. Um, is sort of the Bob Fosse eight and a half. So it's this kind of semi-autobiographical movie of this, you know, virtuoso theater professional as he's reflecting on his life and really sort of getting okay with the idea of embracing death. It's, It's a weird sort of fever dream of a movie. And since I went sort of thinking with the late seventies thing, much like the warriors, this was one of the other first late seventies movies that really stuck with me because I, as much as I am ashamed to admit it, I am a reformed theater kid. And in being a theater kid, you watch a lot of movie musicals and it wasn't until obviously I saw cabaret and I could tell something cool was going on there, but I wasn't struck by something And until I had seen this, because it was the first time I had really watched something that like was as much a fever dream and was, you know, I could identify and go, oh, is that what a surrealism is? And you're like, yeah, you're doing it, man. You're figuring it out. And so the five moments of it's showtime and why I think I shouldn't have picked this movie for this. But I'm glad that I did is that it is such a frenetic movie and it is paced so wildly and edited so quickly that the sequences and the scenes are sort of structured in these kind of, you know, there's this ethereal plane, there's the heart attack world, there's the actual theater itself. And the things that ground where Bob Fosse is, or Joey, I suppose, in the movie are the moments where he looks in the mirror and he says it's showtime. And what I like about it is where the camera goes. Because the last two it's showtimes are shot sort of from underneath him. So you can only see that he is doing the action that we're familiar with. Because I think, and I I mean, I'm hoping that you guys have seen this, but what, what's interesting to me, yes, okay. What's interesting to me about these scenes and what I wanted to bring forward is that I wonder if, because I was sort of thinking about where Bob Fosse's about to go and it's Star 80, mm-hmm. right? Star yeah. 80 is what's about to happen, which is Bob Fosse at his most sort of sensationalist. Let's say that kindly, right? Where like kind of kind of a really gross movie about sort of a destructive Hollywood thing, except it's about the bad guy and not the starlet. Total other thing. But what's interesting to me about this one is in sort of using himself as this figurehead and as this sort of like, you know, sensationalist being like himself, I think that the camera moves away because the movie knows that he's full of shit. And I Mm -hmm. think that the deeper we go into the death fantasy, the further we move away from the it's showtime and from the sort of messaging of that, because I really think the movie is just all leading towards the fact that he is convincing himself that, death is the sort of escape for all of his mess that he's made towards himself. So that was sort of what I wanted to bring up. It was just 
you know, because it's so frenetic and because it's so paced, it's really interesting to see these really quick shots. Like if you watch the movie, you have the context of the movie. These are, you know, blink if you miss it moments. And you see the entire degradation of what his character actually is in them, as opposed to the fantasy that you're presented. And I've always really liked that because that was one of the first times where, you know, aside from obviously like this and like Pulp Fiction, seeing a movie exist in different planes and use these different word worlds, but kind of getting that by just two seconds of a movie blew my mind the first time I saw it. So that's where I was bringing that forth. But I mean, all that jazz is one of those ones that I kind of feel like it's weirdly a Pandora's box of like, you can't really just sort of talk about Remember that one part in that movie because it's such a fever dream and it's so bonkers. But yeah, that's my movie too. Nice. Nice. I like that a lot. I haven't seen I have not seen the movie, but anytime you watch it. I, I I plan to. Actually, a friend of ours just recommended this as one of our picks for our film club that we do. We do with like a monthly film club. So yeah, I think after this talk, I'm gonna pick that one. Yeah, it's just so frenetic and it's so there's something like very stream of consciousness about it. And I think the other reason I wanted to bring it up too is sort of considering that it came out so late in the 70s. And what the 80s are about to be, it is crazy to think that this was a widely released movie mm-hmm. because it really goes in some sort of directions that it's just, you know, you you sort of be like, I can't imagine a conventional audience member sitting through this, not knowing what it was, which I love. I love those anomalies. I love when something sneaks through and just... And sort of to give context about me as someone who kind of works in like a uh, like a sort of small town movie theater. It's fun to kind of think about the reactions that people would have (laughs) knowing the reactions that people have to stuff that feels very, very safe. I couldn't imagine being, you know, popcorn clerk guy in 1979 getting yelled at. By just like, oh, the guy who did the cabaret? You're like, yes, enjoy the movie. <laughs> it would just be such a disaster. So it's it's fun to know that these things sort of sneak out. And it's fun to see it move so frenetically. But yeah, I really recommend. Yeah. Great. Well, the, I like I like when I like the idea that your moments have a very specific purpose. And even how the camera movement plays in that. So I'm excited yeah. to check it out. Yeah. I mean, there's something different about it all. And there's also another element of the last one in particular is not only is it from behind him, but he doesn't even finish it. He breaks out into a coughing fit. His Bob Fosse is essentially smoking himself to death. And that's sort of the, the through line of this kind of like self-destructive behavior. But yeah, no, it's, and it's, it's great. Cause it's, it really is these, these quick blink fast, you know, blink and you'll miss it. Because the movie just moves. If you're not with it, like it'll go. Like if you're not, put your seatbelt on. Just like I'm going, I have a million ideas and I have an hour and 40 minutes. So sit up. Like that's just the pace at which that goes. And that's, you know, as being a little hyper, let's go with that. Love movies that move quickly. So. Well, the great thing is too, is like it's for all the ways that it's an unconventional uh, you know, essentially art house movie. And I think does fit along with days of heaven as like one of the last grass of the seventies, tour driven Hollywood cinema. Um, it's also super entertaining. Like mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, the, the musical numbers are fantastic. The performances are intoxicating 
It's an incredibly sexy movie. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if part of the reason as a musical, this is the first one that really appealed to you was just like, ooh. Well, it was, di- <laughs> look, 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 look. It was different than, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I just uh, just working my way through the Rodgers and Hammerstein stuff. I was like, there's miss- there's something missing here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. Oh, Roy Schneider. That's what, Roy yeah, Schneider's yeah. not in those movies. Yeah, from Oklahoma. <laughs> so that was the problem. From Oklahoma, whatever. Okay, fine. You got it's... me. You win. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, um, I like this movie quite a bit. It's. I need to rewatch Cabaret at this point. It's probably my favorite Fosse movie. Um, Cabaret is. No, this is. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because Cabaret, I saw young and it was like not. I was not ready to open my mind to musicals. More or less, yeah. one that. Uh, or no less one that uh, had beaten the Godfather for best director at the Oscars. I was like, not in my lifetime. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I was, maybe I was being unreasonable at, you know, 13. Uh, crazy to think, but it might be true. Um, but this film, I think, is I saw for the first time a couple of years ago um, and was uh, floored by it. Um, and the it's interesting you you use the you you talk about how with the the way this beat is shot in the latter two instances it's Fosse suggesting he is full of shit mm-hmm. uh at least distancing himself from the protagonist and inviting some criticism i think he does something similar in his less remembered 70s film lenny with dustin hoffman playing uh lenny bruce the stand up there's a bit where Lenny's on stage and he is basically doing a bit about like racism where he says the N word a lot. And, you know, it would be easy. And a lot of the scene is shot like kind of with Lenny on stage, like you're in that space with him and you're in some ways maybe conditioned to be swept up by him. But there's one shot Fosse cuts to that's a more objective PO or uh, objective camera angle, looking at the action, looking at the stage from afar, and you see two people get up and leave, and I could be wrong, but I think it's two black people specifically. And it strikes me as this very overt nod to the idea that, like, Lenny Bruce is not necessarily right. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not going to necessarily refute what he's saying or his arguments here either, because the point of the bit is not that he's, like, getting off on being a racist. He's trying to make a point about the construction of racism, but, you know... Yeah, white people who are like, I'm going to make a point that racism's not, uh, you know, how racism exists by saying the N word a lot is not something that's aged especially well, and it's a small way to suggest that or to cast some doubt on the speaker without necessarily disrupting the flow of the story without having a character have to pontificate on like, you know, Lenny, maybe you're not always right on the things you say on stage. I don't know why it's Jimmy Stewart, but that's who I've <laughs> cast in this hypothetical role. You know, you just pull the camera back. And this does something similar where um, the Fosse character, if I recall, is challenged for his behavior at points in the movie. But it's a nice way for the film to also gesture towards that as well without having to be too on the nose, too on the nose with it. Yeah, because they're going to say on the nose for the last 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) They got to they got to store it all up because we are doing the heart transplant musical number that you did not know you needed. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. how you end a movie. <laughs> yeah, that ending's pretty spectacular. Ian, you got to see this one. Yes, said I'm going to. Jeez, I'm going to get into this movie club. I'm just a vote because <laughs> <laughs> I think it needs to happen. Awesome, I'll check it out. Nice pick. 
Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Well, I'll uh, I'll end it in the trash with David Cronenberg's Rabid. Yeah. And I do mean that literally. So Rabid comes out in 77. I believe at the time it was Cronenberg's best film yet until the next year when he makes, or two years later when he makes uh, The Brood. But at the time, I think this was the best movie he'd made. It's sort of a riff on a zombie movie, but also a vampire movie where you have a patient zero who's infected and is sort of going through... I think from Toronto to Montreal, um, infecting people. But the way she infects them is, has sort of vampiric quality, but the results of those who are infected are more zombie-esque. Um, those details don't matter too much, though, because what I really want to talk about is the the film is all about sort of like observing this like growing pandemic that emerges from, they don't know it's this woman wreaking this havoc, but it is her and the consequences of that. But uh Towards the end, she wants to test uh, the the hypothesis that the protagonist makes that she's pacing Jiro and she's spreading this by deliberately infecting someone and thinking like, okay, I'm locking myself in a room with them. And if they turn into a monster and kill me, then you're right. But when they don't do that, because I know they won't, I'll be vindicated. And of course, they turn into a zombie and they kill her. Um, spoilers. But the last scene in the film is the sort of um, officials, provincial officials, I suppose, um, in their like hazmat suits, just dumping her corpse into the trash of like a dump truck. Um, and then the credits just roll over that imagery. And you can see like pedestrians walking in the far distance of the shot because it's a low budget movie and people are still out and about and they're in Montreal doing their daily business. So they're just in frame. Um and I love this for a lot of reasons. One, as the final shot to a movie, and a horror movie in particular, it's just the nasty gut punch of just like a cork being thrown into a trash pile. And it's just over. It's such a statement of like hopelessness and sadness. But I also find it interesting to think about in regard to um, our own cultural perception of pandemics. Specifically, there's the obvious contemporary one that I'll get to in a second, but also thinking about this, you know, a decade, not even a full decade after this, you have the AIDS crisis emerging into uh, the popular consciousness and spreading at a, at a rapid rate and thinking about the just complete careless disregard for uh, the people who were killed and the bodies piling up in the streets and to some degree, literally piling up in the streets um, and specifically how that was tied to um a moral judgment that was made because uh aids was primarily located in um gay people living in urban centers and so there was not a lot of political will to uh combat the disease and there's a certain poignancy then that the woman who plays the patient zero in rabid is a porn star and think about the stigma that surrounds sex workers in um the same sort of breath that people would have disdain, the same type of people who have disdain, say, for homosexual communities often will have that same disdain for people who work in sex for a living. Uh, so there's a certain poignancy there. And then I also find it very, this scene very uh, haunting in a post-COVID-19 world where because of the, the sort of scope of who, of who was affected, you know, the disease was taken or the pandemic was taken more seriously than AIDS was right from the start. But now the ways in which there's been this push to just move on as if nothing happened, to just metaphorically toss it in the bin and move on with our lives, 
where even though people who are immune compromised are still vulnerable, elderly people still vulnerable, you know, people still getting sick and dying from it, but the bulk of society is maybe less at risk. So we can just move on. And there's this like almost unwillingness to really reckon with the fact that, you know, people did die. People had their lives irrevocably changed and everyone, even those of us who made it through relatively unscathed, essentially had time stolen from us, you know, maybe not necessarily through anyone's fault, but certainly had, you know, something taken. And now there's this push of like, everything's back to normal, move right on. And I find this scene now, when I first saw the movie, I just thought, whoa, that's a nasty little way to end a horror movie. Now it strikes me as way more haunting because of the carelessness with which it shows moving on from a pandemic. So uh, that's my moment. David Cronenberg's Rabid, an underseen gem of Canadian cinema. Well, you read a lot more into that ending than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think you're onto something because it is definitely a shocking ending. Like, they literally just throw her in the garbage. It's insane to me, but. And then it's just over. But what do you think Cronenberg was actually like? Do you think he was really trying to hit on things like that? Like, where, or was he just like, I don't know how to end this movie. Let's do it like this. <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, certainly the very direct connections I'm making to events that would happen afterwards, he didn't know. Yeah. I do think he's probably intentionally tapping into a certain disregard that is held for the lives of people and the sort of willingness to just move on from this and, and toss things away. Um, the extent to which he would have been aware, though, I mean, it's interesting that when The Fly came out, it was immediately read as a metaphor for uh, for AIDS, and he very was much like, I didn't make it with that intention. Um, and actually, as a metaphor, it doesn't work perfectly because the whole thing with The Fly is that there's no way to stop what's happening to Seth Brundle. AIDS, there is a system that can help you and is choosing not to. So it doesn't really work perfectly as a metaphor in the first place, but you can see how the imagery latches on to the to what was really happening, and that was unintended. Unintended. So there's no way Cronenberg was thinking of the of Rabbit in those terms, but I think the overall attitude, I would speculate, is is intended. Maybe, but maybe there's something to the fact that it's her and not like any of the other victims like her best friend who took her in or something like that like the fact that she's kind of the typhoid mary i don't know i don't know i haven't really thought it through but is there do you think there's significance that it's her as kind of like the the causation of all this even though it's really kind of the doctors but mm -hmm. yeah maybe i mean it does it does strike me though in that sense of like with that it, it's deliberate that it's her but it is there's a connotation i think of it being like tragic yeah. you know that it is like in some ways because she is a very even when she's you know infecting people and getting people killed she's a very sympathetic character because she doesn't really know what's happening and she can't really control it um you're right especially and, when like with her with her um with her i want to say roommate but just that friend that she's staying with mm -hmm. and she's trying to convince her in and i remember she says the line i don't want it to be you <laughs> So yeah. it's like she she knows she can't control this. It's almost like a werewolf idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there does seem to be, I think there is a very, 
certainly I think the the casting quirk is coincidence, but I do find there's something to it uh, as like this expression of like which lives are disregarded and which ones aren't. You know, the fact that you could paint her as the perpetrator of this, so therefore her life is forfeit. We can right. throw her in the trash. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do find it like, I do find it absurd, intentionally sattered. Feels that way anyway. I mean, I don't, I don't know what exists in Cronenberg's in the depths of his heart, but it would seem consistent with his other films, which for all their, as much as people like to fix it on like Cronenberg, the body horror guy, the grotesque imagery, the really sick things he puts people through in his movies. His films are marked all of them with like a very strong and pronounced sense of empathy. He cares a lot about the people in them, even in something like the brood, which is very much fueled by Cronenberg's own angry feelings going through a divorce. Um, and is not, does not take the time to play nice the way Kramer versus Kramer does when talking <laughs> about those issues. But even in that film, you get a sense of like, there is a concern for uh, the wife character in that movie, even when you can also feel Cronenberg being so angry that, you know, at his own uh, ex-wife at that time and what he must, what he was feeling. Um, so I do think there's empathy to to her fate and uh, and how it's, and I think there's also something really fitting like i mentioned like you can see people walking by and the first time i thought i saw that i was like to me that feels very like low budget like we're not we can't block off the streets we're gonna set up our shot and just shoot and people are in the background then tough you know you can imagine this being if he has you know a 20 million dollar budget it's a bit more like desolate you can almost imagine it being like we talked about recently the uh, opening of 12 monkeys with desolate city but you can't do that so you see people in the background but that ends up fitting really well especially in the post-COVID world where people talk about, like, we were in lockdown for so long. It's like, we were in lockdown very briefly before people were like, we need to open again. I can't take it anymore. I need my brunches back. You know, so this idea of, like, even though, you know, you're coming immediately after this horrible pandemic and these horrible, um, or I guess it would just be an epidemic in in this case because it's localized to Ontario and Quebec. Montreal. Um, Yeah. But, uh, you know, even though it's like life or death stakes and it's so urgent and and uh, terrifying, there is this, we've seen this push to be like, okay, but I'm not stopping my life. I need to get back to it. Um, that I think is, you know, unfortunately very timely and very like, uh, whether intended or not, holds true with that ending um, in ways that Cronenberg probably couldn't have anticipated. Yeah, and I think you could also make an argument sort of going off of all of that that those people in the background help you too because it almost in how blunt the action is of just disposing of the body it almost makes a suggestion about how people are desensitized too. Like there's a this, this sort of idea of like uh, coming out of this thing and this city can just eh, dead body just throw it out. Like I wonder if what it's saying is that not only if we are going to go down the, you know, if we are going to look at it as a metaphor for sort of, you know, illness or COVID and stuff, but it's, it's not only is there the sort of impact within the individual, but sort of the aftermath might just be how the perception of things go from that point on, right? Like, even if you look at it through the AIDS crisis of like, at a point, there was definitely a point where the sort of out of sight, out of mindness was, you know, like, 
it wasn't blatant. Well, I, I suppose it was blatant, but, you know, people would see those sort of side effects and see, you know, really awful things. And you just kind of continue. Like you could look at rabbit about sort of, a, you know, like a homelessness problem in Toronto in the seventies. Like you mm. could, there's a lot of sort of different disenfranchised people who will eventually, Oh, that thing finally worked itself out. In you go. Like that's sort of my reading on that end of that, you know, because it, it is so stark from everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I wouldn't say that it's just like, what if David Cronenberg had like a, you know, like, what if we just throw a body out? No, I think the bluntness of it sort of really makes it feel like they're guided towards something. And obviously it can be extrapolated to all kinds of different issues, but I really think that's just the core there. Yeah. I think you're right because there is like, for the most part, the rest of it is sort of dealt with like you would expect just an outbreak to be dealt with like the news mm-hmm. is kind of dealing with it like it's a normal outbreak um other people around it are kind of you know taking precautions and stuff but the fact that they actually throw somebody in the garbage is not something that i mean that's not supposed to be taken literally i think you're right yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i like the point you make about you know stepping outside of strictly being like disease or outbreaks but about you know the ways in which the disenfranchised are metaphorically chucked in the bin. Um, I think that certainly holds true and, and does seem again, like a consistent feature with Cronenberg's filmography. Um, Not that he's the whole movie is about her illness. And then she's immediately cast out. That's Mm -hmm. the, the beat that we're left with is like, Oh, okay. Like she is cast from this thing and we've dealt with her suffering. We've dealt with all of this awful stuff. But in the end, the the sort of renounced, the sort of solution was, eh, I'll just throw it out. Yeah. And in a sense, it's the problem has been solved. Yes. That's the other thing, too. That's where the sort of desensitized, what I think I was trying to articulate, where like this problem was solved and it was sort of low energy, which is also kind of terrible. And it solved itself. And now all we have to do is like, you know, get a mop and mm-hmm, it's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The right person died. Yeah, yeah. Um, cheery film for us to end our episode on. Hey. I do, I do, I do have a funny point to to add about it. So I was watching it this today, um, or was it last night? And um, I was only about like twenty minutes or so in, and my wife kind of walks by and sees me watching. She's like, "What are you watching?" So I'm like, "Oh, it's just, I think it's as sure." She's like, "What's it about?" And I said, "Well, right now it just seems to be about somebody who hugs people to death." <laughs> like i really don't know what's going on yet <laughs> i mean if the boot fits oh yeah You're not wrong mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah this is one of my i wouldn't say it's one of my favorite cronenberg films in the scope of his career but certainly of his like pre the brood films i think it's easily the best i like shivers okay but i think this is much better and i think it's better than like his his student films like the original crimes of the future and stereo um, and I think it's an important, like, indicating where he's going to go, not just with the the body horror and the grotesque, but with the greater empathy that makes that have weight and makes that matter. Um, and certainly its focus on, like, disease specifically does very much predict what the fly is going to do in a little less than a decade. Hmm. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. Those are our 70s picks. Yeah. 
a pretty bit good of Canada ones. in there. Yeah, well, you know what? Like, we are the best. <laughs> <laughs> it's about time people knew. Yeah. Should do okay. we start the we're number one chant, or are we just gonna let that simmer there? We'll we'll let it go implied, you know. <laughs> okay, we're, we're good. You know, we're I was ready modest. to go either way. I just you know. <laughs> Well, we meant to do this at the beginning of the episode and then we forgot, but we do want to give a shout out to some people who have been sharing some stuff on our Spotify. So you can interact with us there if you're a Spotify listener. Um, So I've got a few that I want to point out and I'll just read them out and you guys can kind of react to them, I guess. This was from our villains moments episode. So basically I just throw out the question, like what villain or villain moments do you guys love? So here's a couple answers. Uh, William says he likes Simone in Rocco and his brothers. Oh, I don't know that movie. It's been oh, ages wow. since I've seen that, but that's yeah, that's a good pick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Harry Powell in Night of the Hunter. I know you'll be on board for that. Yeah, oh, boy. Darth Vader in Empire Strikes Back. Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Frank Booth in Blue Velvet. <laughs> good old Frank Booth. <laughs> Frank Booth. Uh, Alan McPherson also gave moments for his. So he said Albert Brooks in Drive, the line, it would have been so cool. It's been a long time since I've seen Drive. I'm not really sure hmm. what that's referring to. Yeah. Is that I remember that Brian Cranston scene? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm yeah, not I sure. I don't remember that line, but I that performance is fantastic. Because he's not someone you expect to be a villain, which is interesting. And even the way he plays it, it's like he's almost like He's not like lamenting that he has to do these horrible things, but he doesn't seem particularly eager to do it either. It just kind mm-hmm. of is like, well, when he spoilers, when he slits, you know, Cranston's wrist and he's just like, don't worry, it's over. Like, and it's, it is weirdly reassuring in the moment. Hmm. You know, um, the cuckoo clock speech from third man, Harry Lime. Yeah. One of the best okay. bits mm-hmm. of Wells ever. And the band rehearsal slash torture sequence from uh, Lee Van Cleef and Good, Good the Bad and the Ugly. That's oh. a great scene. Play that fiddle, you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Alan's picks. Thanks, Alan. And then yeah, Alex. Picks, Alan. Alex just says Alonzo from Training Day every moment. <laughs> so he's a big Denzel fan, I guess. That's fair. He makes that movie. Yeah, he definitely does. Uh, yeah, so there you go. If you guys want to help interact with us, if you listen to Spotify, we do. I did throw one up for the uh, one we did last week, which is movies we love that others hate. So if you want to share some of your picks, give that a go, and I'll sure I'll throw one up for this week as well. Yeah, late seventies movies. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah. We stepped over some big ones. I almost did Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and thought I think we've done Spielberg a lot. I'll give him a break yeah. this week. And we had just touched on Apocalypse Now not that long ago, too. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, yeah. Could have went to Animal House, but... You could have. <laughs> there is there is a character in that movie named Daniel Simpson, so... Oh. <laughs> yeah. Daniel Simpson Day, specifically, but... Oh, Doom, Doomsday, is it? Yep. Mm, nice. My namesake. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. There you go. Not actually my name's like I should clarify, I was not named after a character <laughs> from Animal House. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> so far as you know. Maybe so far as I hope to you a little bit later. I'll never um, find out. My dad will start we'll... confessing it to me and yeah. Quiet <laughs> you. Uh, well, Jordan, thanks for coming on. 
Yeah, it was great. It was, I it had a lot of fix. fun. This was fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so we've got to have you on again sometime. You tell me when, and then I'll come up with more musicals you don't want to watch. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go Family deep. Paradise. We're talking about Sherbog. <laughs> We're talking about Family of Paradise. We're going to watch Repo the Genetic Opera. I'm going to ruin everything. <laughs> Is Repo the Genetic Opera good? I've never seen it. Uh, I mean, I was just mostly doing a bit. I really don't want to watch Repo the <laughs> There's something about like, you know, watching Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer try to steal the girl from Spy Kids organs while they sing opera at each other. They don't really do it for me. You know, it's a real specific taste. There's like a Venn diagram of like serial killers and like musical theater fans. And then Repo is right in the middle there. It's like super specific. But anyways, thank you guys so much. I had a great time. Yeah, it was good um good uh can do you want to share anything plug anything anywhere you want people to find you or do you want to stay hidden whatever oh i mean there's nowhere to find me but uh, i will always plug the screening room at uh, 120 princess street in uh, sunny beautiful kingston ontario this is how i met dan that is our uh local watering hole sort of theater so mm-hmm. i'm gonna plug something i'll do that excellent but no you can't find me don't bother looking <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Uh, Dan, anything else you want to add before we go? Um, I have no new video to promote, so rewatch all my old ones. There we go. Especially the ones that are monetized, because <laughs> I'm leasing a car now, and I need money. <laughs> Get those pity watches in. Hey, no matter what emotion is driving you, <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm just opening <laughs> YouTube right now, okay? Give me a minute. <laughs> go on. All right. Okay. Well, yeah. Tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds or email us cinema and seconds at gmail.com. And again, interact. That's where you listen to us. Um, and thanks for listening. I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>